And most people, they don't care if somebody batted 300. You know, I go places and people don't even know what a grand slam is. They have no idea what a fielder's choice is. They, you know, but guess what? If you tell a good story, people understand that and they like a good story. And that's what I've tried to tell in my travels, good stories to keep people engaged with this great, great game that we have. Major League Baseball, Minor League Baseball, it's just baseball, period. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today's episode is true to the spirit of this podcast, since it deviates into a previous era of history, specifically the history of baseball. It's actually the first of two sports history episodes I'm dropping in the coming week. The other is about professional indoor soccer in the 1980s. I'll get back to travel topics in future episodes, specifically an interview with Paul Theroux that drops later this month. But in talking about sports this week, I'm not unpacking strategies and statistics so much as looking at the ways we can use the games we watch at home as a lens to understand the wider world. Today's episode coincides with opening day for Major League Baseball, and it explores what the sport was like before it was racially integrated 75 years ago. The major leagues have actually been trying to honor the accomplishments of black players from that segregated era of baseball, as evidenced by this news from last December. From 1920 to 1948, black players barred from the major leagues could only play in what were called the Negro Leagues. And as a result, many of their accomplishments have been forgotten. Today, baseball commissioner Rob Manfred said the MLB was elevating the seven Negro Leagues to major league status. That's going to add their 3,400 players' names and their statistics to the official record books. Now, as it happens, I grew up with an uncommon appreciation for that old history of the Negro Leagues, in part because I grew up in Kansas, and Kansas figured prominently in the history of black baseball. In fact, at a time when Major League Baseball was centered on the East Coast, the Negro Leagues were founded in the middle of the country in Kansas City. And if you wanted to see national class baseball in the Great Plains 100 years ago, it usually involved black teams. For instance, my great-grandparents went to an exhibition game in 1925 that pitted the local black team, the Wichita Monrovians, against a squad of Ku Klux Klan All-Stars. This was during a time in history when the Ku Klux Klan was making its way north and trying to establish itself as a civic organization in places like Kansas. And even though my great-grandparents were white, they took great pride in the fact that the local black ball club in Wichita was able to repudiate the ideology of the Klan by defeating them on the ball diamond. It's stories like that that make this era in American sports history so interesting, and to dig into some of these stories, I called up baseball historian Phil Dixon, who helped co-found the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum back in 1990. Phil grew up in Kansas City, Kansas, and began seeking out aging veterans of the Negro Leagues and interviewing them starting in the late 1970s, a grassroots effort that's led to seven books and hundreds of lectures about that era of baseball history. Together, Phil and I talk about how the Negro Leagues weren't just a civil rights response to segregation, but a successful business enterprise that often attracted more fans to urban stadiums and white ball clubs. We talk about how black teams like the Kansas City Monarchs played night games with portable electric lights before the major leagues did. We talk about how black teams back in the day made extra money by playing what were called barnstorming games, that is, traveling from town to town to play local white ball clubs, often having to sleep on the team bus because racist policies prohibited them from staying in hotels. We talk about Phil's skepticism about including Negro League statistics in the Major League Baseball record since those numbers are not always reliable. 
We start by digging into the underappreciated history of black baseball that happened before the major leagues were integrated with the famous debut of Jackie Robinson with the Brooklyn Dodgers in 1947. Let's listen in. Baseball is very much an American story. It's very much an American metaphor. And one of the great stories of American baseball is what happened in 1947 when Jackie Robinson integrated baseball, or he began the integration of baseball. But I think it's easy to forget that there was a rich baseball culture before 1947 that gave rise to people like Jackie Robinson. So I guess I'll just start by asking you, what do we miss in understanding baseball if we miss the Negro League's history that happened before 1947? Well, I tell you, you miss a lot because uh, the reason why there was a Jackie Robinson was because there were teams like the Kansas City Monarchs that he had joined that had been operating since 1920. And even before then, Jill Wilkinson, the original owner of the Kansas City Monarchs, goes back to around 1910 when he was operating the All Nations, which was a team made up of different nationalities. And they traveled the country, actually, especially the western part, Uh, When you're talking about uh, like Kansas, Missouri, Iowa, Nebraska, and uh, Wyoming, North Dakota, South Dakota. And so they made a name for themselves with an interracial team. And so that was uh, going back to 1910. Of course, Jackie Robinson doesn't come until 1940. So he steps into a grand legacy. And, uh, of course, he joins the Kansas City Monarchs. And they don't just play in Kansas City and other league cities. They are a barnstorming unit, so they're going to play all over, and Jackie Robson had the opportunity to play in different towns in Kansas as well. Yeah, well, uh, I want to talk about barnstorming down the line because that's such an interesting aspect of how baseball was played back then. But first I want to jump on the fact that Jackie Robinson came out of the Kansas City Monarchs because as a guy who grew up in Kansas myself— Black baseball was a a part of pride for people in Kansas back in the day. I I heard this through stories from my grandparents and great-grandparents. Back when major league teams didn't really exist west of St. Louis, there was teams like the Kansas City Monarchs were really sort of the New York Yankees of their era. Um, And if you wanted to see good baseball and you lived in a place like Kansas, which was far west of the majors, you watched black baseball. Um, and I know that when, when the Monarchs barnstormed through Wichita, which is my hometown, they, they would sell out the park there. Uh, and in fact, um, in 1924, my great-grandparents went to a, a game in uh, Wichita where the minor league team, the Wichita Monrovians, an all-black team, played a Ku Klux Klan all-star team and, and won. And so I think the history is so rich and it's so intertwined with the history of America Um, And so I guess I'll start, I'll kick this off by saying you're a Kansas guy too, but how did you get interested in the history? You're, you're an expert now. What was the, what was the first uh, little bit of information that got you started in becoming an expert about Negro Leagues era baseball? Well, you know, I uh, grew up in Kansas and when I was born, my parents were older. So my father was 49, my mother was 44. And I was the last one of eight born in my family. And uh, I just kind of took a liking to baseball right off. And and I can talk about my first baseball game I went to. Actually, my parents, they weren't really that interested in baseball. and But I wanted to go to the game so badly that uh, my parents gave me $5. And I got on the bus by myself and rode uh, two buses 
uh, I still remember this. I had the Quindaro bus and the uh, and the other was the Indiana bus. Got off at uh, 18th and uh, Indiana, walked up the street to the ballpark, which was old municipal stadium. Came from Kansas now. Mm-hmm. And I was able to see that it was in 1969, the first year of the Royals, huh. uh, that I went to my first baseball game. And I had wanted to go when the A's were here, but couldn't get anybody to take me there. I was a little young, so I just went on my own. And I remember going into the ballpark. And, you know, it was just like a – first of all, the amazing thing is that when I stepped into the um, into the park, the first thing I noticed was all the beautiful colors because I had been watching the game in black and white TV. Huh. And so, I, you know, I stepped in there. It was like everything became in living color, right? Uh-huh. And uh, that caught me. And I didn't know where to go. And, you know, back then you paid a dollar just to get into the general mission. So I looked down the right field line, and there was a group of uh, older black guys who used to sit in that section down the right field line uh, toward the outfield. So I went down there, and I just sit around them. And I knew a little bit about baseball, but I would just listen to them talk. And um, these undoubtedly were old Kansas City Monarch fans, Hmm. a lot of them, you know, 50, 60 or or more. Well, I like I like the, the the thought of you sitting with these older black fans up in the stands who were familiar with the Monarchs and this other league of baseball. So let's look a little bit about at the history of why there was even the necessity of a Negro Leagues, because I know I've been to that museum in Kansas City, Missouri, and you see some pictures from the late 1800s, and some of the teams are integrated. Some of the teams have white players and black players, and so... How did baseball become segregated, and how did that lead to the rise of the the Negro Leagues? Well, you know, one thing I might mention, because I want to make sure that I cover this, some of the last ball players to play in the integrated minor leagues, which started, minor leagues started integrating, actually, Bud Fowler in 1878 hmm. uh, was one of the first black players to come into the minor leagues. And then slowly, black players were pushed out of the minor leagues. And the last minor league to have black players was actually in the state of Kansas. Hmm. And a lot of people don't know that. So right at 1899, uh, 1898, uh, the Kansas State League, which was a minor league, actually had black baseball players in there. So Kansas has a legacy that uh, it should be celebrated. So, yeah, Kansas is a part, and and really what it goes back is to, you can go back to the Pythian Club in Philadelphia. Uh, This is uh, shortly after the Civil War, and uh, so we're talking about in the 1880s, and leagues were starting to organize all over the country. And the Pythian Club, which which at that particular time was an all-black organization out of Philadelphia, they wanted to join the league. And the league drew the color line on them in Philadelphia, one of the earliest leagues, professional leagues. And that was the beginning. And so later on, you get into the 1880s, you have people like Bud Fowler. By the way, uh, Bud Fowler did play for Topeka. I think it was 1886, 84, somewhere there. He played for Topeka in the Western League. But also you have people like Moses Fleetwood Walker. Who, who break the color line. And actually, Moses Fleetwood Walker is considered one of the first black players to actually play in the major leagues. It wasn't Jackie Robinson. Hmm. And uh, so he was playing with Toledo at that time. So that was the legacy. And by you get to the 1890s, all the black players are gone. 
from the minor leagues, except for the few that were still playing in Kansas, which became the end. Of course, there's no black players who legitimately break the color barrier until Jackie Robinson in 1945. And guess what? He's playing for the Kansas City Monarchs. Hmm. Yeah. Well, another great detail about Kansas City, like Kansas City is sort of a hotbed of baseball at the time because when a man named Rube Foster decided to sort of push back against segregation by sort of creating his own league with with some of the best players who weren't allowed to play, he met with people in Kansas City. What What is the story behind how the Negro Leagues, how the Negro National League was formed? Yeah, the league, Negro actually came out of a original movement that started in 1910. And uh, actually, how about this one? The original movement had the first black professional team in Kansas City, Kansas, as part of it. And a gentleman by the name of Tobe Smith, who was the owner, uh, the team was the Kansas City, Kansas Giants. And, of course, uh, the manager was Topeka Jack Johnson, who was from, of course, Topeka, right? And uh, he was a professional boxer in his spare time. He wasn't the Jack Johnson. He was Topeka hmm. Jack Johnson. Okay. But they started in 1910, and they tried to organize the league, but it just fell through. They couldn't They couldn't pull it together. So the teams that were originally in there and some that would appear later uh, began to play independent baseball out of their particular city and they might invite you know like the chicago team might come down there and play a series or the indianapolis team would play a series and many of these teams came to kansas city so but rube foster's team was one of the great teams and also rube foster ran a booking syndicate so not only did he book his team he booked the chicago giants he booked the uh the Cubans who would come over and they had no home field and they would just play barnstorming games from, from in everybody's park. Right. Mm-hmm. So he booked them. He also uh, started and booked the Detroit stores. So when it came to 1920, they wanted to organize a league. Well, they wanted those cities and the only way they could get those cities is to bring Rube Foster in and get him to give up his booking agency for the sake of starting the league. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's what he did. And they did right there. The whole meeting took place at the Paseo YMCA in Kansas City. And uh, February 13th and 14th in 1920, and by um, the start of baseball season, which was in May, they had the first bona fide existing Negro League. And uh, it turned out to be something really great to be celebrated. I might also mention uh, they had their league teams. It was eight league teams. But in addition to playing those league, league cities, which they usually did on Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and the holidays, they had all this space in the middle of the week. And because baseball was America's number one national pastime, and every town, for the most part, had a team, the Negro Leaguers were able to take the middle of the week and barnstorm into some of these places and for the Kansas City Monarchs, one of the places they barnstormed quite a bit was in the state of Kansas. Mm. Yeah, well, let's uh, let's define barnstorming. It occurs to me that some sports fans might not even know what that is because it's not very common anymore. And so when – do you know where that word comes from, and what exactly did barnstorming look like? Yeah, barnstorming originally came out of the entertainment field, and this is when entertainers would do – you know, they take their show on the road and they would perform nightly 
maybe at, at best two nights in the same city. So they call it barnstorming. So you're moving from town to town. And uh, black baseball teams pretty much picked up on that. And the Negro National League was, is probably still to the day America's only truly professional barnstorming league. So not only did they play the league cities, but they, they would take their game. And, you know, for instance, in, in the 1920s, uh, you could go to Osawatomie, Kansas, and see the Kansas City Monarchs playing the St. Louis Giants right in Osawatomie. And, you know, so, for, you know, and they're playing league games there, and that's pretty much unheard of for Major League Baseball, which at that particular time didn't come past uh, St. Louis. Yeah, and as I understand it, those were those games were big draws because again, the the Major League Baseball didn't really get west of the Mississippi, and so you saw really excellent baseball when you saw the teams like the Kansas City Monarchs play. But also sometimes, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the Monarchs would play the local ball club, and so it was as if you got to see you know that era's you know Derek Jeter and Roberto Clemente playing against your town your town baseball players. So what was, what was that like and how did they organize these games? Well, it, it was, it was pretty exciting for those towns and it was one of the most exciting times for baseball outside of the major leagues because the towns would shut down the whole downtown section. So everybody could t- attend the game. So business didn't, you know, fight for the business. They would just shut down the whole town. And for a black team coming through, that's going to play. So it was, it was like uh, it, it was like a, the carnival came to town, and and it, and the thing is, it got even more interesting when night baseball came through in 1930. And that was pioneered by the Monarchs, wasn't it? It was a black baseball team that played the first night baseball in America, correct? Well, actually, now you're going to find this quite interesting too. Uh, in Independence, Kansas. Uh, they were racing to beat the Kansas City Monarchs to play the first modern-day night baseball game. And actually, they did. Hmm. So they played, they played a week before the Kansas City Monarchs, maybe a week and a half, and they used permanent lights. And it was the independent producers against the House of David. Now, the House of David was a white touring team uh, religious organization uh, out of Benton Harbor, Michigan. And so actually the first night modern night baseball game was played in the state of Kansas in Independence. The Kansas City Monarchs ended up kicking off their night baseball with the portable lights. So they're the first under portable lights. And they played in Enid, Oklahoma, just across the Kansas border there. Yeah, so, you, the House yeah. of David is a team that I didn't know existed until I visited the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in Kansas City, Missouri, and they look like a bunch of, you know, hippies or wild prophets. They had long beards. Uh, and I know that you recently were interviewed by uh, the historians up there in Michigan. And so how, in a nutshell, would you describe the House of David baseball team? And how did these bearded white guys end up playing a lot of games against Negro Leagues teams? Well, you may find this interesting. The uh, I credit House of David and the Kansas City Monarchs with saving baseball in 1930, 31, and 32. And so we're getting into the Depression, right? So the Kansas City Monarchs come out with night baseball, and they're playing night baseball, taking their light show 
to towns that had never seen night baseball. And, you know, the movies had just started talking four years before then. So night baseball, talking movies, man, you know, these are, these are the rage of the day. Everybody's excited for both huh. of those. Right. And so the Kansas City Monarchs play all of 1930 with their lights. They go and they finish the season in Western Kansas. So the next year, 1931, instead of the Kansas City Monarchs coming out with that same lighting show, they actually leased the lights to the House of David. Mm-hmm. Now the House of David has Grover Cleveland Alexander, who's in the Hall of Fame, with the House of David, and they went places that the Kansas City Monarchs had not gone in 1930, and they continued to popularize night baseball. So uh, when we think of night baseball, we rarely think of the House of David or the Kansas City Monarchs, but they were actually uh, two of the most important uh, teams in pioneering night baseball, which we just take for granted now. But Well, let's talk a little bit about what life on the road must have been like. Um, you know, Kansas is famously a free state. And um, that I mean, Kansas is a state that gave land to black settlers in the 1870s. But I'd imagine it wasn't fully um, free of discrimination for these players who were barnstorming and playing the the white stars in these towns in places like Kansas. So what was it like for um, an all black team like the Monarchs or other teams to barnstorm through Kansas? Could they could they eat at normal restaurants and stay at local hotels or was it a little trickier? Absolutely not. And you know, what's interesting, you, you, uh, I talked to players who were with the House of David, and I remember talking to a guy named Dorsey Mulder, who uh, played with the House of David in the early 30s, and he said he, they always used to joke that they never saw the Monarchs until game time, because see, the House of David could stay at whatever hotel they wanted to. They were white. So, yep, they were white, so they could stay right in the heart of downtown. And, but the Negro Leaguers had to stay in rooming, rooming houses or either in, in the what they would call then the colored section. Hmm. And what's interesting is some of those cities had no colored section. Hmm. So uh, the monarchs had to figure out a way that they can keep traveling in some of those places. And, you know, having barnstorm through some of those towns and and it gave me a chance to understand some of the ways they did and some of the ways they existed. For instance, the Monarchs played Salina a lot. Close but to where Salina, I live. Okay. Well, see, yeah. the Salina game was usually followed by a game in Denver. Wow. Wow. So what they would, so what they would do is they would come to Salina and they'd play a night game. And so they would get back on the bus <clears throat> So they didn't have a hotel to stay in. They would get back on the bus, and then they would ride the bus all night. And then the next day, they would show up in Denver, hmm. where they could. You know, there was a hotel that they stayed in Denver. And so the way that they made that whole thing is they, they never planned on staying in Salina. Salina would be the jump-off point going to Denver, and they had it fixed where they're going to travel all night. So... And the worst, the worst thing I know, Buck O'Neill, he used to joke with me. He said the worst thing you could do was see the bus driver watching the baseball game because <laughs> he was supposed to be sleeping. <laughs> he was supposed to be sleeping so he could be awake when they're driving the bus overnight. So uh, yeah, it, it, there was a method 
to the way that they traveled. And there were certain places, sometimes they would uh, have cab cabins that they would stay in in certain places, I think over Hill City, Kansas. I think there were some cabins they would stay in. But they knew where they could stay, and so they kind of timed it. So, for instance, they might place Salina, and then the next day they're going to go overnight, and they're going to be in Oklahoma City. Hmm. It's where they could stay. So the bus became their hotel many a nights. And um, a lot of times if they pulled into town and they needed to change clothes, uh, every member of the team had a YWCA, YMCA, excuse me, YMCA uh, pass. pass. Mm -hmm. So they could go down to the YMCA, take a shower, uh, and then that's how they would clean up or they would change clothing at the YMCA and then go to the ballpark. So that's pretty much how they cleaned up in a lot of those places. So, uh, but the Monarchs over the years, they kind of figured it out and uh, they knew how to keep rolling. And, but you know, they never stayed in Topeka as they would go to Topeka. They could return to Kansas city overnight. Mm. They did stay in w Wichita quite a bit and Wichita became a jumping off point for them to uh, go other places within the area and they could come back to Wichita that night, sleep in Wichita. And so they could play that region. And then of course they worked out of Oklahoma city quite a bit. Yeah. You know, I've looked at old, I think they're called Negro community yearbooks from Wichita, which is my hometown from the 1920s, where basically you had a list of, of black owned businesses um, that advertised and sort of boarding houses where people could stay. So I'd imagine the Wichita's, which had the Wichita type towns, which had big enough black communities, could be an overnight town. But maybe Salina, which was a little bit smaller, maybe it was a little harder to stay there. Um, so it was a really it was a really distinctive travel experience for these teams. Um, did did they enjoy it and did they make money or was it sort of seen as hardship duty to go barnstorming? No, no, they definitely made money. Uh, uh, you know, when the Monarchs came in, it, it was not uncommon to see uh, the newspaper advertising that this was the best attended baseball game of the year. Hmm. And and the Monarchs had one little trick that they would do uh, during the 1930s when their partnership with the House of David is very strong. The Monarchs might come to say they might go to Junction City and they'll play Junction City and beat the town team. And then the House of David would come through, play the Junction City town team, and they would beat them. And so then the Monarchs would schedule a return game, the Monarchs against the House of David in the same city. And uh, so that's they would take all the money. You know, so those three games are going to be the biggest uh, draws of the year for that town. And uh, many, matter, matter of fact, I, I was looking at one game that was in, I believe it was, I believe it was Humboldt in the 1930s, and uh, the Monarchs played there. And the money was being used to buy band uniforms for the high school. So whoever the promoter was, they would bring the Monarchs in for fundraisers. Hmm. I remember once in Ottawa, they had the American Woodman organization bring the Monarchs in for the annual picnic. Uh, they played a lot of fairs, um, you know, uh, around the country and around Kansas. So the big game for the fair was to bring in the Kansas City Monarchs. And during the 1940s, late 1930s, they began to bring more black teams together. So they had pretty much beat up on the town teams, and the hmm. town teams knew they, they weren't going to beat these guys. And so 
they started booking two Negro League teams into the town. And so cities like uh, parks like uh, Rayther Park there, and I think Rayther's in Junction City, became uh, one of their main stops. And uh, so it was an exciting period. Yeah, you know, I'm just wondering what that was like for the people who lived there, because you mentioned Junction City, and I, uh, George Giles, I think his name is, a fairly well-known Negro Leagues player. Do you, do you know if, if George saw these teams barnstorming when he was a kid, or did, oh, it, did it inspire the local black communities? How did that work? Oh, absolutely. Uh, George, George Giles, uh, now, most people don't know George Giles, perhaps, but George Giles... Um, signed up with the Kansas City Monarchs when he was 15 years old. Wow. And uh, he had played against the Monarchs when they came through there. But he was also a bat boy for the men's team that had played against the Monarchs. And one of the interesting features of when they traveled these teams the, into these cities, rarely did they play an all-black team. And they did play the Monrovians in uh, Wichita in 1923. Oh, really? But rarely, yeah, yeah, they did. But rarely did they play the black team. It was usually the white team, and it, that became the big draw. So uh, especially during the 1920s, the early years of the uh, Negro National League, they were playing almost exclusively white teams in these small towns. Well, I know that when, when you were a young guy, you sometimes had trouble finding information about the Negro Leagues. They just weren't covered as well in mainstream publications uh, as the Major League Baseball. And so how did you end up being sort of a detective and a historian of this old history? And where did you go? It sounds like you've talked to a lot of people. Yeah, I did. I did early on. The interesting thing was I enjoyed baseball history. And so I was reading the backs of baseball cards and reading books for as long as I could remember. And none of this information was in books. And I ran in 1980, I ran into Carol Ray Mothel in Topeka, Kansas. And uh, he began to tell me about Black World Series and his time with the Kansas City Monarchs, which he had joined in 1920. He played for Ruth Foster in 1920 as well. And he uh, played with the Kansas City Monarchs until 19. 34, and then he had to quit because he had to have rotator cuff surgery. But when he began to talk, I knew nothing about this league. So I went back to the library. At that time, there might have been five books in the library. And those books only talked about people like uh, maybe uh, the ball players and, and that have been put into the Hall of Fame. So quite naturally, they're going to talk about black ball players like Satchel Page. Josh Gibson, Cool Papa Bale, Buck Leonard. They were talking, Judy Johnson was another one. They were talking about those guys. But having played baseball all my life, I know that no one man makes a team, hmm. especially a championship team. So what I did was to go back and begin interviewing people, started in my community in Kansas City, Kansas. And then I just began to interview people who were those other people. And I felt like everyone's story was important. So I began telling these stories. And then the other thing was I began to find photographs because not only was there no books, there were a few stories and even less photographs. If you go back to the book, Only the Ball is White, and people celebrate that book, they might have had 20, 
photographs in there, and most of them were grainy. Hmm. So I began to go house to house, starting in 1970. Actually, the first photographs I picked up were 1977, 78, somewhere in there. And over the years, I was able to find lots of photographs, find lots of stories. And those stories ended up in my second book called The Negro Baseball League's A Photographic History, for which I won the Casey Award. And a lot of people at that particular point, they, they saw that, you know, hey, people were interested in this. And so today, there's probably 500 books on the Negro Baseball League. You have to be careful, though, because a lot of the books are the same cup of coffee warmed over. Hmm. But uh, there is definitely more information out there uh, than it was when I started. There was basically nothing. I had to start from scratch. And, uh, of course, we had no Internet. Um, I could search the census, but the census only went to 1910. So uh, a lot of it was just having to interview people. And there was a, there was a, a librarian uh, that was at the Kansas City, Kansas Library. And, and I was a, what they called a debit insurance man. I worked in insurance, and I was a debit insurance man. So I collected premiums and actually went to people's house to collect their insurance payments, right? Mm -hmm. So the mid the middle of the day was pretty dead. You know, there'd be some older people at home, some retirees, but most of your business was going to be in the evening. So once I, you know, see the older people, then the middle of the day, I would go to the library. And I was there so frequently that there is an older lady who came up to me and uh, she said, you know, you're here every day and you're paying for these copies. She said, why don't you just pay me at the end of the week. Hmm. And so so I was able to go to the library, make all the copies. She write down how much I owed them, owed them and uh, then I would come in at the end of the week and pay. So it allowed me, you know, just go to the library anytime I wanted. And and uh, years later, this she was probably she was a white lady. She might have been in her she was close to retirement, so she had to be in her seventies then. But I thank God for her because man, she helped me get this history and uh, she looked for me to come every day. And uh, I just kept researching, researching, researching. And uh, so I, I still have a lot to say. And uh, But that's how it got started, pretty humbly. But it was people who were willing to help me um, to get started. And, and I also might add in a person. There was a guy named Fred Langford. Fred Langford was about 94 at that time, yeah. 94, 95. And he had actually played baseball in 1909 or 1908, and his mind was very sharp. And he had actually gone down to Parsons, Kansas, and played with the Parsons Smart Set in 1917, something like that. And he would give me names of ball players, and he would tell me where they came from, where they died, who were their relatives, you know, especially if they were in Kansas City, Kansas. He knew who were cousins of people. Man, that guy was valuable. This is amazing to hear, just because there's such a grassroots effort to to saving history, really, because now we have the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in Kansas City, Missouri, and last year, the, the Major League Baseball decided to recognize Negro League statistics as part of its own history. Um, of course, this year is the 101st anniversary of the Negro Leagues, which were founded in Kansas City. How hard was it to find statistics from that day and age? And what role have you had in trying to preserve this history? 
Yeah, you, you usually don't find that many statistics. Uh, what you find is box scores, and people are trying to take those box scores and make statistics. Now, some of it is problematic because, you know, having been a person who's researched this history for a long time, I know that certain newspapers, especially when you get in the East, like the Pittsburgh Sun, Sun Telegraph, or the, they would not keep at-bats in their format. So their format might be runs, hits, uh, assists, and errors, and they never mention at-bats. Huh. So when these people go back, they're able to find a box score, but it has no at-bats. I think it's good that they're recognizing the black athletes for for their ability and what they uh, did to help this game of baseball and the, the level that they played, which was major league level, right? Mm-hmm. Why well, I appreciate that. I'm suspect of the, the way the numbers will be presented. Hmm. And the other thing I'm, I'm, I'm really leery about is that they're only taking seven leagues. And those leagues all started after 1920. But if you remember, black baseball goes back to the 1860s. So those players are going to be segregated out of those statistics. And, um, and so that concerns me as well. And then also, there are some teams, like I wrote a book called uh, The Great Teams, the 1931 Homestead Grace, which I happen to think was the greatest black baseball team ever assembled, assembled for, for a summer, right? And were they in Pittsburgh, Homestead Grace? They were, in, they were in Pittsburgh. Okay. But guess what? They're not part of a league. Huh. So even though they're this great team, in the middle, you know, they've, they're playing during this period. The Major League Baseball says they're going to recognize from 1920 to 1948. Their information will not be included because they weren't in one of those leagues, even though this, you know, they had Josh Gibson, Satchel Page pitched a few games for them. Oscar Charleston was there. Willie Foster was there. And uh, Judd Wilson, these are all guys who are currently in the Hall of Fame, but that season won't be in- included. So it, these numbers are going to be skewed in, in a way that it, I think it's going to confuse more people uh, than, it, than it will entertain. In some ways, I wish the major leagues would have left the Negro League statistics alone. Huh. Well, I, I'm, I'm curious to know how we might compare the, the excellence of the Negro Leagues with the uh, the major leagues during that era, because I, you mentioned Buck O'Neill earlier. He's sort of famous in Kansas City. Um, he became involved with the Royals organization, and he played in the Negro Leagues himself. And mm-hmm. I, I have a quote attributed to him. I, I could be wrong, so correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like somebody come up, came up and said, you know, Buck, um, it's a shame that when you were in the Negro Leagues, you weren't playing against the best players. And he's basically saying, well, how do you know I wasn't playing against the best players? You know, maybe Babe Ruth wasn't playing against the base, best players when he didn't have black players to play against. Now, I'm, I'm p- paraphrasing. I could get that wrong. Right. But anecdotally, how good were these teams? Yeah, you know, that's a great phrase. Uh, Buck O'Neill uttered that phrase at Satchel Page's funeral. What Buck realized, that you know, Buck went on to become a um, professional scout with the Chicago Cubs. So not only did he play baseball, but he scouted baseball, and he saw a lot of guys uh, in the Cubs system when he got there in 1955. Plus, as a uh, touring Negro League player, he saw a lot of white baseball players as well. 
So when he makes that statement, it's just not a random statement of somebody who has not did, did not know what they had seen or somebody who read something in a book. This was a statement that came from a life lived in baseball. And basically what he said essentially was uh, that we looked at the major leagues as having the base player, best baseball players, but he could pretty much say that it wasn't true. And But, of course, he didn't phrase it that way. Buck, being an eloquent speaker, uh, was able to phrase it in a completely different way. But when you get down to the nuts and bolts of it, that's what he was saying, that not all the baseball players in the major league were major league caliber. And and you have certainly had guys in the Negro, Negro leagues that were of major league caliber, no question about it. You have become an expert in the Negro Leagues, which in, in part you've helped us remember as a culture and as Kansans. Um, what do you think the legacy of that Negro Leagues era is right now? How should we remember this famous, well, actually this, this time of excellence that may not be remembered as much as other parts of baseball? What is its legacy? Yeah, I think the legacy of the Negro Leagues is that baseball – needs to be uh, looked at again, baseball history, because the baseball history that I grew up with wasn't truly America's baseball history story. It was the major league story. But actually, this history of why baseball is great is comes from the other direction. It comes from communities, those small towns, and and then goes up to the major leagues. But baseball is truly our national game, and I think we need to know the reasons why. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including links to Phil Dixon's books about Negro Leagues baseball, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. 